Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's show. I hope you're doing well wherever you are listening to this um, across the world. We are well into our summer here in the UK and the kids have now broken up from school so I'm taking uh, an opportune moment whilst they have gone to the park to record the introduction to this week's um, show. It's an interview with Rennie Hoare, who is a partner at Hoare & Co, which is a private bank here in the UK. You hear a lot about the history and the family values and the sort of core ethos of the family going through the business in the interview with Rennie and I'm really excited to uh, bring that to you in today's show. This draws to um, a close at the moment the series on sustainability. I'm going to take a break for a couple of weeks. Since the beginning of this year I have put out a podcast every week other than a couple of times where I haven't published. Um, And given it's a summer, given the kids are off school, I am also going to have a little bit of a break from doing this. It is something I fit in around my work and other commitments, so it will feel a bit strange not having it on my to-do list for uh, each week, but um, it's only going to be until September when I'll be back with a bang talking about uh, specific challenges that I've helped family businesses to navigate. Um, So you'll probably resonate with some of those and can take away uh, some or all of what I do with those families in those episodes. But that's coming in September. Just a reminder before we get into the interview with Rennie that you are able to support the show if that's something that you want to do. The website address for doing so is fanbizpodcast.com forward slash support and there's a number of ways you can do that top three being leave a review so that other people can find it if it's something you're enjoying secondly there is a buy me a coffee link which is a way for rewarding creators for creating content and also sharing it with your friends and family and if you're an advisor with your colleagues as well. Um, So if you are enjoying the show and you want to show your support, you can do so that way. Also, another thing is in relation to the newsletter. So I send a newsletter out every month and it has links to various blogs, um, the podcast from the previous month, uh, and any videos or other content that I think is valuable to you guys. And I have heard from some that the email when you sign up to join the newsletter is finding its way into the spam folder so if you are trying to sign up to the newsletter and then wondering why it's not being received it may be because the confirmation email that I need is in your spam folder so check in there and you can then click the confirmed subscription and you'll get added to the list and, and sent 
an email with lots of great content in every month. Right, that's enough of me. I will hand over to the interview with Rennie. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you've enjoyed the series on sustainability. I think there's been a huge amount, certainly for me, to take away from the interviews that um, I've had with various different businesses and organisations. And I hope it's been helpful for you too. And I will speak to you again in September. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the show. I am really excited to bring you an interview with Rennie Hoare this week. Rennie is a partner and head of philanthropy at C. Hoare & Co., which is one of England's oldest banks. And we're going to get into some detail on the history of the family and and the family business in just a second. But firstly, Rennie, um, hi, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, as I mentioned, you are a partner at C. Hoare and Co. And for the benefit of the members of our audience who may not have heard of the organisation and of you, give us an introduction and uh, an overview of uh, the business. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So we're a private bank set up in 1672 uh, by my ancestor, Richard Hoare. It's still 100% family owns 11 generations later. So uh, there are six of us. We are the 100% owners of the business and we're all 11th generation uh, descendants of the bank's founder. I think for, for those that know family businesses, we, we probably constituted slightly differently. So instead of going through each generation, there being an ever diluting shareholding, what we have is that as soon as someone stops working as a partner of the bank, their ownership is handed back down. So handed back into our, our core pool of, of partners. So when, when we think about the family, actually there are 2,400 living direct descendants of the founder of the bank. And we very carefully look as partners of who we bring into the bank and then who we bring into the partnership. So that's that's a bank we focus very much on providing UK private banking, and it's um, an intentionally small and high quality service offering that that we provide. Which, which I, I think, I think, good to stick to the things that you're good at. Three hundred forty-nine years. So hopefully, we know a few things of how how it operates. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think as well what what that um, teaches us in in terms of. Uh, succession about continuity of the business um, we are in this series looking at sustainability and obviously it's a sustainable business from a longevity um, perspective because it's as you say 349 um, years you, you mentioned you're one of 2400 descendants how how do you go from 2400 to six what's kind of your the process of of selecting partners and um sort of communicating that amongst everybody who uh, is potentially able to uh, follow that route i think there there are two halves to the answer of that question one's very top down and one's very bottom up uh, but both of them are about culture and values so the one thing that's that's very different from a lot of other banks about our bank is that each of the owners has joint and several unlimited liability so all of our personal assets are also on the line um, when when thinking about this business 
So when you're wanting to have other partners as, as part of the team, part of the decision-making process, you have to feel absolutely comfortable that they have the right, right risk tolerance, that they are culturally aligned, that you can trust them to sign a credit decision that has your unlimited liability backing it as well. So right at the top, you have to feel unbelievably uh, comfortable and aligned that values and culture are right there. And then when I think about the 2,400 cousins, culture is also absolutely fundamental. And we use philanthropy as the binding tool um, for that widest bit of what it means to be part of the whole family. So any one of those cousins can apply for a grant of up to £5,000 in a charity that they're deeply involved with. And we think that that, that really stimulates and promotes the right way of thinking about other stakeholders, but also what are the core values for us as a bank and us as an institution. It's incredible that there are six of you in that, that partnership role. And you mentioned about the um, shareholding being something that once you stop working, it then goes to um, the next partner to, to come into that. D does that help foster a sense of being um, kind of a custodian for, for now? You're kind of a steward of the business rather than it being it's mine and therefore, uh, uh, you know, it, it kind of alleviates some of the short-termism that can often uh, come in with uh, concentrated shareholdings. I, I think absolutely all of us see us ourselves as stewards of the business doing, firstly, wanting to hand it over in a better shape than, than the way that we received it. Um, I think the second thing that's quite important is that because it's not a right to hand it over to your children, you are looking much more about who's that broader pool of successors, how, how do you bring them through, how do you develop them? And it, it means that there's a much more collegiate atmosphere in terms of developing those next family members to come through, which is which is deeply powerful. And it, it does lead you to that 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 big thing around families which is you've succeeded when you're succeeded uh, i think all of the characteristics of it are aligned for that objective yeah absolutely and the topic of our conversation today is is looking at um sustainability and an element of that that can often be misunderstood i think in terms of that is it that's almost at the cost of things like profit and growth and what we're seeing by the fact that um, the bank is 349 years old is that in its truest sense that is a very sustainable business but if we look at it through kind of the lens of maybe the sort of ESG the environmental uh, social impact side of things where does that sit in terms of your agenda as partners within the bank in, in terms of the operations the way in which you run the business and how you work and, and that kind of thing so one one of our four underpinning values is social responsibility. So right at the heart of what we think we want to be uh, engendering in the business and giving it the chances to succeed, social responsibility is, is there as a value. But I think that's, that's an underpinning characteristic for something we articulated in 2018, which is that the purpose of the bank more generally is to be both good bankers and good citizens. And this consideration of the wider environment, how, how do you be a, a successful 
and relevant corporate actor and, and drawing other stakeholders um, is is something that I think for us over the next decade will will really continue to mark us out as as an institution. Um, I would say that being a bank that focuses predominantly on individuals, um, a lot of the things that big banks are having to grapple with in terms of lending to huge corporates and, and those types of footprints, by the nature of our model, we're not having to deal with as much. Um, however, we are still putting that lens on how do we improve things, how, how do we make sure that we're running the best bank that we possibly can. And one of the um, things that I've seen that you've done recently is to introduce a more environmentally friendly bank card. There's a couple of things that I want to um, kind of pick up on on that. And, and firstly, there's a, an article on your website, which we'll link to in the, the show notes that introduces this. And you're very deliberate in the sense of saying this is going to be rolled out at the natural end of the plastic cards that are currently in circulation because otherwise it creates more waste and so that that i think is from the conversations that we've had off air in, in preparing for for our conversation today is kind of the the awareness that you have of not just doing something for the sake of it is actually to understand the impact of it and to look at it as the pros and cons and where you can have that impact and the card side of things seems to it's a really good case study point of that in operation is, is that fair is that the approach that you would take as a as an ownership group as to how things are implemented within the organization i think it's it's looking at ways to do things that have a real impact rather than a marketing impact and if you're if you're trying to minimize your plastic your plastic footprint and actually what you're doing is stimulating everyone throwing away their cards three years before the end of their lifespan that's really not a great thing and you're you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution um, i think we also had quite a big discussion around should we use the compostable cards or should we use ocean plastic and we we felt that the ocean plastics, although resolving an issue of, of plastics in the ocean, still don't um, alleviate that problem of end of life. What what do you do with the plastic? So that's that's why we went around the uh, compostable route. And these types of decisions, of course, there will be. Um, there's no absolutely perfect way of doing it, but a lot of thought goes into it to try to make sure that it's truly thought through and and understood in terms of an impact rather than just being a next thing to put on a marketing output or it's it's a shiny veneer and there's there's nothing behind it yeah and i think as well there's there's um i can create an extreme example of saying well um we're not going to have office now because the the footprint of having a, an office is too high therefore we're going to send everybody home and everyone's going to be working from home uh, and if you look at it and saying, well, I've I've stopped something from happening over this side, whereas actually what you're saying there is you're looking at what you create through that solution as well of, okay, now we've got X number of people working from home that are consuming energy at home that would be in an office that could perhaps be more efficient. Uh, and there's a lot, I think, of temptation to to do things because it's seen as the, the done thing for that marketing 
um, point rather than actually understanding the full impact of it. How do you measure that impact? How do you go about making those decisions as an organization for it's the right thing to do, even though it's not perfect? I think I think with an acknowledgement that there's much more complexity, there's a lot of these decisions, the closer you get to them, the more actually it's a number of marginally imperfect solutions. There's there's very, very infrequently the absolutely perfect solution. One of the things we, we went through the process of in the last couple of years was we have a, a small um, fleet of cars that help transport packages around London, help, help with deliveries. And we've moved them to um, hybrid and electric and we put in the electric charging point. If you only look at that, it looks like a fantastic set of decisions, but you also need to look at what's, what do you do with the end of life fleet? We only did it when things had fully come to their end of utilization rate, because if you if you move from one set of circumstances to another, particularly if you're getting rid of cars, actually you can be producing way more unnecessary CO2 than um, the needed by by sort of crushing or selling a car early. So I think in that is just a perfect example of something that could look very easy. The more you dig below the surface, the more you have to build in uh, gateways and uh, complexity and understanding to make sure that what what should be a great thing actually actually matches up to it. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really valid point. And one of the uh, comments on a, a previous episode on this subject is that the business are taking the view of progression over perfection. And rather than saying, well, we have to wait for it to be a perfect solution, because you say as you get closer and closer to it, the complexity starts to arise around, well, this looks great, but actually there's a knock-on impact of it. Um, making progress towards something is far better than waiting for it to be a perfect solution to to start. Would you agree? Absolutely, and I don't I don't think complexity should stop you from action. That that would completely be the worst set of circumstances. And also, you you build up your knowledge, you build up your competence by getting involved in making these more complex decisions. And so, if you don't start, then there's no way that you can hone your your skill set to be able to make more adept and more precise decisions in the future. Mm. And you've got six of you as partners in the business, but overall, there's four hundred, roughly four hundred um, employees in the organisation. Yes. How how do you go from in terms of the decisions that partner level and at family level, you say about the, the values and, and the ethos being very, very key to, to, to that. How do you then expand and communicate that across 400 people who are going to be at various different points in the organization with various different roles and responsibilities? How, how does that work in um, your business? The first thing to explain about the, the way that we uh, work at the business as partners is we are embedded in the business we are working there every single day so we're not remote owners we are we're meeting customers we're, be, we're meeting employees we're getting involved with um, some of the big uh, strategic decision making on a daily basis and because of that you're coming into contact with a huge amount of, of people and and that's that's one way of of imparting your role modeling you're you're passing on the 
the things, the values, the culture that you, that you think are important. And we've had to work very hard at that in the last year and a half. And so whenever any one of the 400 employees has hit a, a milestone, so maybe this this week we had someone who's who's been working at the bank for 40 years. And uh, what we did was made sure that there was a conversation with a partner, but that that type of milestone recognition has been done by Zoom from sort of one, one year to two years onwards. So we as partners are coming to, into contact with huge amounts of bits of the bank because we're not now, because when everyone's remote, you're not bumping into them in the corridor, in the canteen. So constant interaction is, is one. The second bit is that the, the decision making, um, the overall decision making body for the for the bank is the board. And there are non-executive directors on the board, but there's also the partners. So mm-hmm. the the decision making of of the family then come comes through that top down through the through the board. And then I think the third bit, which has has been fascinating, is we have been having a huge amount more of a focus on our purpose of being good bankers and good citizens. And we've had a, a cousin who she has been leading a set of workshops, finding ways that it's really, really an engaging two-way dialogue with people all the way across the business. So I think I think there are sort of three main buckets that it fits into, but culture and the transmission of messages is such an important thing that you're constantly having to work at it rather than there's there's one thing done it's it's then it's then done and i know again from our uh, off-air conversations that you utilize the sustainable development goals that the un um, have published now they've only been around since uh, 2015 i think they were were published and a lot of what I hear from family businesses that I talk to about this is that actually a lot of what was going on pre-2015 aligned to those sustainable development goals. But what the SDGs do is allow you to then kind of pin things to and measure against something that is tangible rather than it just being part of business as usual. Um, has that been useful for you as a business to be able to say well we're now we know we're aligned to something that is much more publicly known than just what we believe to be the right thing to do i think the the way that we're looking to use the sustainable development goals is on two levels one is it helps bring together a number of different colleagues from all across the business who really care passionate passionately about climate action sdg 13 for example and so under that banner they can then be involved with something that they're deeply passionate about and can start can start affecting change inside the business i think the other thing that we found is really useful is that you can then link it with other activities so if you're using the sustainable development goals you can see that charities are then operating in that space, that there are other um, private individuals operating in that space. It helps you draw together partnerships, which otherwise would be really difficult to identify and then um, maximise in terms of putting the right people together and using the resources effectively. And what, what we've seen is 
trust inside our charitable trust, the Golden Bottle Trust, which runs alongside the bank. We've used the sustainable development goals to, to demarcate the grants that we give, and that's found pathways and linkages from the giving that we do inside the Golden Bottle Trust and the activities that we're doing inside the bank. And that, that I think, has been a really exciting development. Given your role as uh, head of philanthropy, it's still a word I struggle with. Look, regular listeners will know that I've always struggled. So we agreed off there, <laughs> we're going to call it giving. Um, to, to make it easier, let lets me off the hook a little bit. But um, in terms of the work that you do in that area, what do you see as shifting? Is there more focus on the sort of sustainability side when we're talking about um, giving and, and how that operates? Um, has it always been there? And again, it's now being more recognised. What's your view on that side of things? So the the quite five I've seen definitely in the last few years is more at the charitable trust level where people are looking at the the entire rather than just the impact of the giving i think over the last decade there's been a lot of very positive developments on how do you make sure that your giving is impactful as possible calibrated and you really understand who who you're helping and what are the causes what had slightly been an unaddressed issue was when charitable trusts have big pools of investments and in a worst case are investments that are invested into things that are trashing the environment that are causing some labor issues and they could because maybe the pot's quite considerable that could be undoing all of the good that you're doing in your highly considered grant making you can start thinking about what is our total portfolio impact rather than what is the impact just of our grant making. I think that mindset shift from grant making to the impact of everything inside your charitable trust is really exciting. Now, I see the next development of that is looking across the full supply chain of money. So it moves from grants to the investments to purposeful businesses powering these charitable trusts and using a common global framework like the Sustainable Development Goals allows that linkage to run all the way through and that in itself almost becomes a, a virtuous cycle because the businesses that are operating in that way will uh, if they're looking for investment and they're working towards the sustainable development goals they might be more likely to get that investment from external sources which will allow them to grow to grow in a sustainable way which allows them to do more in terms of their own giving and grant making and um, things like that it, it it helps everybody there's no kind of losers in that situation it, it's it, this isn't at the cost of others i think it's at the cost of the people that are doing things really badly um but yeah there, there's definitely a, a big benefit to it and when you're looking at um, increased inequalities probably focus on what are the the issues with capitalism. There does need to be a revitalization of cap capitalism, and if at the heart of it you're considering your environmental and social returns alongside your financial returns, actually that very very constructive framework to move from money only to a lot broader the environment you consider wider society and when we look at the last year and a half it's been um certainly an increased uh 
validation of, of why these things are so critical. I know you do work with mentoring and, and helping sort of younger philanthropists. I'll try and I'll, I'll try and improve my pronunciation as we go. <laughs> and are you seeing uh, um, that it's again sort of front and center in terms of their thinking as the causes they want to benefit are is through that lens of purpose and sustainability and social impact is that far higher on the agenda with with younger versus older is it that clear cut i mean we talk about it from a family business perspective where there are lots of senior generation who are absolutely driving this forward it's not something that's new it's just something that's perhaps been given a bit more of a label now um, in in the press and, and wider society, but is it something you're seeing a lot of energy behind from these young givers? Yeah, I, so I, I think the first thing, and this will come as a very welcome development for you, is very few younger people are labelling themselves philanthropists anymore. I yes. think that <laughs> <laughs> so this 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 is a this is a winning development. But I, I, I think people are much more identifying themselves as impact investors. So they're looking at the full range of resources that they come, can bring to bear um, to help solve these big problems. And that, that, that spectrum that they look across goes from their giving to their investing to their operating business, if, if, that's, if that's there. Um, your point about it not just being a millennial or rising gen fascination, I think is also correct. The, the thing that is deeply embedded in lots of family business is that sustainability and not sort of putting in excessive growth, really thinking about reputation because your name is above the door. Those types of things are really embedded, but it's I absolutely agree with your characterization of it. It's been a formalization of a lot of the ways of talking about it alongside, I think there has been rather a seismic shift on being able to quantify and measure it, which is, is also rather important um, in terms of honing best practice and also beginning to identify who are the people talking about it, but not doing it and who are the people talking about it, but really delivering some, some amazing things as well yeah and i think that highlights as well uh, a really important element to it is that this isn't something that is new when, when we're talking about sustainability and, and perhaps the sdgs um that that people might start to go actually oh, let's use those to help capture what it is that we're all already doing because it's not it's just been contextualized and, and made more visible for people. It's not as perhaps a bigger shift for people to go, well, uh, I keep hearing about this sort of ESG side and this sustainability side, and I'm not really sure where to start. For most, I'm guessing that just taking a look at the 17 goals and going, well, okay, we're already doing five or six of them, and there's three here that we're not doing, but they're really important to me, it is a good way of starting and actually recognizing what's already happening rather than it being right we've got to start from scratch here and and uh, upend everything yeah i th i think making sure that it's seen as a continuation of the conversation rather than something completely new is is important for it 
to be absorbed and, and people get up to speed with it quite quickly. I also think that there are ways that people make subjects impenetrable and environmental, social and governance considerations is, people call it an alphabet soup or whatever you want to call it. The experts in the field quite often do a very bad job of bringing people from a base level up and making sure that they're included with the conversation. So definitely whenever having these these types of, of conversations, it's really important for families, the people who are really informed, that they bring people with them and make sure that, yes, you're talking about a common framework and you're talking about things where it's a continuation of the conversation that the family's been having for a long time, but don't go into such technical language that you shut people off and you close people out from feeling like they do understand what's being discussed. Yeah, and I think, again, it, in terms of, sort of cross-generational conversations, but because it is um, more visible now or, or more obvious that you can you can utilize the, the let's just stick with the sustainable development goals as, mm -hmm. as an example it, it may be tempting for some to go there's this new thing that we need to change and, and go on to to this and that can be quite intimidating whereas actually having an open conversation about going let's look at what we're doing already and see how we measure up against these is perhaps a better way to encourage the cross-generational conversation because it's not one generation trying to tell the other that this is what we should be doing it's more a continuation of what's already happening and I, I think going back to what we were saying about the SDGs being introduced in 2015 and you being able to then go well what we're already doing aligns to all of these kind of is is a, a case in point absolutely uh, I think the use of a global framework is that a lot of your activities will fit into them and so that's that's useful to show this is where we are at the moment as a business it will also highlight areas where you could be doing more and i, I think using something that's tried and tested by other people and is signaling what has been globally recognized as the most important plans to the planet it means that when you're thinking of where should I allocate my additional resources, where should I look to shift things, you can be do, doing it and you're, you're pulling and you're becoming part of a concerted effort to solve problems. Yeah, and I guess in terms of your the, the head of giving side of what your um, role involves, there's various different mechanisms that I think you use in order to help deliver those to, to deliver that giving can you just explain a little bit about how those structures work and how they operate and perhaps how you've utilized the sort of sustainability side to to focus your giving in in those structures absolutely so we we discussed um the golden bottle trust which which runs alongside the bank so each year we as we as partners have decided that up to 10% of the bank's profits each year go into this charitable trust. We as a bank are standing behind that commitment to be sustainable and, and to, to give back. When we then looked at our giving, a lot of the giving was very was done on a bottom-up basis. So we, we were looking at each grant-making decision and deciding yes or no, was, was this a good decision to make? 
And that organic grant making was absolutely fantastic in those micro level decisions. But what, what we realized was you ended up misaligned with your big strategic objectives. So at the beginning of 2018, what we did was we profiled each of the family members involved with the Golden Bottle Trust um, on the decision-making side to see what do we really care about. And we, um, we compared our organic grant making with our desired impact and put in place a series of grants to make sure that overall our grant making was aligned with, with what we said was most important. One of the big strands running through that was climate action, SDG 13. And so we've, we've been on a quite interesting development on finding out as much as possible in that space and really going deeper into it. And this year has been a case where we've realised and accepted there is no silver bullet if you're looking at environmental grant making. What you have to do and it's probably appropriately called uh, ecosystem grant making, where you're you're looking at different components of what can be effective in climate change. And so that's taken us into the, the slightly more experimental areas where possibly your grant making can prove that there are different ways of doing things. So that's peatland restoration. That's, that's looking at um, growing, developing, uh, seagrass. It's looking at agroecology. It's looking at ways that you can you can shift and change systems. And we absolutely accept that we'll never have the capital ourselves to go and solve the big problems that are out there. But if we can de-risk it, if we can prove that there are different ways of doing things, then that's that's deeply exciting, and it can allow safer funds to come in afterwards. So that's that's the way that through our grant making we think about acting as a catalyst and, and really um, trying to help in, in this SDG that we've, we've identified, identified as being so critical. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the things that we learn, for, particularly from the seagrass involvement, becomes very useful and interesting to the bank. If, if we really have to get to a point where we've brought down our carbon footprint as, as low as it can be, and we do need to be doing some offsetting, Having an understanding of these these slightly more impactful areas will be a massively powerful resource for us. And again, it's a, a way of um, highlighting to others what can be done as well by by setting that example and going, well, we've we've been making grants and, and been giving money to these causes, and we can show what they're doing and evidence it, and then we're using it ourselves. It's trying to it's starting to break down some of those barriers where people may feel they perhaps don't have the time, knowledge, expertise, whatever it is to, to be able to embark on that journey themselves. Organisations like yourself being able to, to do that um, is helping them in a way, but w without them necessarily being um, lazy about their own um, efforts. I, I, think, I think for us, we absolutely have the humility that we don't have the perfect time. We do exist in some of these things, which we're really happy to share with people that, that are interested. And I think there is something that can be learned from practical experience. What suits us as a business and us as a family, um, it might well fit in with a lot of other families, but we, we don't want to go out saying we have the perfect answer. I think we've got some of the tools that people might want to plug into to learn a bit more from. Yeah, and I think as well that, that approach takes me back to the bank card. 
because uh, again, it, it, and I know it's a a bank card in itself is a is a small thing, but but the the note that you make in the um, press release about it is that there are elements of the way in which bank cards work that can't be recycled, that can't be made any more eco friendly and efficient. And it, that hasn't stopped you going as far as you can in terms of uh, making an impact by changing it to the, to the compostable um, material. And, and that, again, is a, a shining example of not letting perfection be the enemy of progress when it's towards something that you believe strongly in. It's making strides where you can against the um, measures that you're using. And also being transparent where the, the stuff can't be recycled and is, is still part of part of the um pollution problem that that um humanity is contributing to in terms of consuming things and throwing it away and i think if you if you were to push out and not highlight those things um it it would be a shame and would it wouldn't push the development of chip producers think gosh is there a way we can do it uh in in a slightly different format that allows it to be um able to be recycled or there is something cradle to cradle with with the way that we've developed it. But back to the topic of giving, what do you see as the trends over the next? You mentioned about the kind of total portfolio impact and, and how organisations can look at that. And I think there has been a shift as well over recent years away from the kind of, um, one of my guests referred to it, the barbell approach, where you've got, you know, a, a business that's polluting loads on one end, but it's okay because we're doing some, um, charitable stuff on on the other side of it, or we're we're having a bad impact in the labour markets, but we we give to our uh, local causes. That that kind of offsetting approach is ignoring the total portfolio impact. I think that you mentioned earlier. But what what else do you see in that area that um, gives you sort of reason for optimism and, and hope and, and positivity? So I, I think the the first thing that that gives me hope in this is the quantum that people are giving at the moment people have have identified that there's there's real need out there and are stepping up so we we have a a charitable structure that uh customers can use instead of setting up their own charities they can use uh something called a donor advised fund which is already registered with the charity commission and this year it's a decade old uh and during that time 150 million pounds has been donated out of it to end charities uh, so customers have put their money in there and then donated it back out to amazing causes mm-hmm. in the last year and a half 60 million pounds of that 150 million pounds has been donated so wow. people are really identifying needs and really going in and, and sort of helping problems that have be- become much more apparent over over this COVID, um, over this COVID period, and so that really heartens me. I think the other side of it is that even when there was the opening up of these identifiable gaps, people were still thinking about how we therefore, once we get through this, how can we continue to be strategic philanthropists? How can we make sure that we can rebuild the arts, that we can rebuild? Um, a lot of sectors that have been really massively affected. So on two levels, I've, I've been given optimism. One is there's a big quantum giving happening, but two is people have made sure that they are going to be able to stay the course and they're going to be able to 
continue to help the causes that they've identified as being critical for the next next wave of, of what happens yeah fantastic and that that's really good news on uh, on both accounts and if, if somebody's listening to this and is thinking that actually i i want to do more around charitable giving or philanthropy or impact investing as it's going to become um known on this podcast certainly um going forward <laughs> uh wh- where where do they start? Is it as easy as saying start here or, or what sort of considerations do you speak to people about when they're looking to make those decisions about um, impact investing and, and giving? So I think a lot around philanthropy is, is put forward as an exercise in perfection, that it's people giving perfect grants that are measured amazingly. It's all very, very complicated. And because of that, it it looks a deeply impenetrable exercise. I'd say two things about that. One is there are things that go wrong and people should get much better at sharing those failures. And two, that expertise and that credibility is built through the action of doing. And so if I was to speak to anyone, I would say, try to identify people in your networks that are involved with philanthropy because they will be incredibly happy to talk you through things, to share um, their expertise and their time. People are incredibly generous on that side. And because of that, you will then get up, get and do that first step. And taking that first step is is really the, the important thing, because then you start learning, you start building your confidence, and you start to, to work out where do I want to allocate more of my time and my resources. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much. And talking about being very generous, uh, we're very grateful um, to you for um, speaking to us today and get, giving uh, your time to uh, share your expertise and knowledge uh, on such a important and interesting topic. So thank you um, very much for that. Um, if our audience want to get in touch, find out more about you, um, where's the best place for them to go for that? I think I think probably looking on the bank website is is a is a good place to go to and the second thing if if there are desires to get in contact if if they want to either contact you and it can get handed on then i'd be very happy for that to happen great stuff and we will put a link to the bank's website on our show notes but for now uh, all that's left for me to say is Rennie, thank you again for joining us on the show uh, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I um, have already earmarked an episode with you next year to talk about your 350th anniversary. So I look forward to sharing that with the audience uh, next year as well. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. And, and thank you very much for the chance to have a conversation today. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.